You're listening to BiblioAsia Plus, a podcast produced by the National Library of Singapore. At BiblioAsia, we tell stories about Singapore's past, some unfamiliar, others forgotten, all fascinating. Hi everyone, my name is Jimmy Yap and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of BiblioAsia, a publication of the National Library of Singapore. In this episode of BiblioAsia Plus, we're going to talk about Stone Age Singapore. Is that really a thing? It's not common knowledge, but stone tools have been found in what is now Tuas and on Pulau Ubin. Some of these tools might be around 6,000 years old. This estimate, however, is based on the type of tool found rather than from radiocarbon dating. Do these stone tools mean that Singapore was inhabited during the Neolithic period? Turns out, this is not an easy question to answer. Here to talk about this with me is Fu Shu Ting, a librarian with the National Library. She's taken part in archaeological digs around Cambodia and in Singapore. Here, she was part of the team that excavated Fort Tanjung Kato. Shu Ting has written a fascinating piece on Singapore's stone tools in Biblioasia, and she's here today to tell us all about them. Hi Shu, welcome to Biblioasia Plus. Hi Jimmy, it's uh, great to be here, thanks for the invite. Well, we're very happy to have you. Um, so tell me, what exactly has been found on Tuas and Pulau Ubin? Okay, so uh, the first director of the Botanic Gardens, Mr. Henley Nicholas Ridley, uh, he first reported the discovery of uh, something called a round axe uh, at Tanjung Ka uh, Karang in the northwest of Singapore in 1891. So if you want to like imagine what the stone tool would have looked like, think of like the head of an axe and just take out the handle. So that is similar to what you would actually see on the actual photographs. So sometimes it would be, like for the later ones, it would be hafted, uh, like you would basically want a wine twine around it and then affix it to like a wooden handle, things like that. So you can use it to, you know, uh, chop wood or do other things with it. So it depends on what the, the tool looked like. And this was found where? Um, this is uh, in Tuas. Oh, Tuas. So uh, what, yeah, what was, you see Tanjong? Tanjong uh, Karang. The round axe was found in Tanjong Karang. That's right. So what else has been found there? Ah, okay. Uh, so, so far, that's the only one that we've discovered so far. Um, but there's actually more in his notes uh, that we think... We, we don't know exactly the circumstances because it was never published. He just said, okay, he found it. A couple of years ago, uh, some Malaysian archaeologists actually emailed me and asked me, you know, do you know where this location might be? Or even in Tanjung Bunga in Johor, where that location might be. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, a few years ago, uh, I did not realize, you know, there would be so many materials at the library. And so when I joined, I realized, hey, there's actually, you know, possible clues as to, you know, how, you know, they, they were excavated, the location and things like that, that might not be found in the publications themselves. Oh, so we actually have his notes in the library? Uh, yes, we have his notes. Uh, it's pretty interesting. Um, have you had a look at them? Yes, yes, I've had a look at them. There's actually quite a few volumes. Oh, but, but volumes. Volumes oh of them. Right, okay. So a lot of them, because, you know, he was the first director of the Botanic Gardens, right? So some of them deal with botanical notes, but they also talk about his voyages 
from other areas in, oh. of Southeast Asia. Oh, that sounds Even like to places like New York and things like that. So it's not just um, research. What's interesting for me was that in this particular, um, one of his volumes, I think volume five, I think, um, in 1907 or 1908, there was actually something that I found that was pretty interesting. Um, he visited Walter Williams Geet. He's a famous author who wrote about Malay magic. That's right. Um, and apparently, uh, he found out that Skeet's house in Kuala Lumpur, that a couple of his houses were pretty haunted. Oh. There were, shall we say, hauntings? Um, okay. And it's, it, basically, he found out that the house had been bewitched by a pawang. So wow. in, in English, like the closest equivalent would be like a wizard or something right. like that. Or maybe in Malay, it would be like a bomo or something. Uh, but so that no one uh, but those of the family uh, of the man uh, who bewitched the, per the, the house in the first place could live there. And so he had to get rid of it somehow. And so if you, if you look at the notes, wow, there's actually all kinds of stuff. Okay, so a round axe has been found in what is now Tuas. And yes. what's been found in Pulau Ubin? Okay, uh, so in Pulau Ubin, they've also found an, a couple of other round axes, but also something called like um, um, a chip. So... What happens is that when you have a stone tool, uh, it, it, or actually a rock, you try to make it and shape it into a stone tool. So you basically you break pieces of it. And so parts of those pieces, depending on what they are, they're called chips, stone chips. Uh, and yeah, so they found bits of that uh, there in uh, Ubin on the northwest point. So they were found in Tanjung Tajam on Pulau Ubin. Um, but, you know, Singapore's a small island. So actually, you know, around Singapore, there have been like significant fines as well. That's right. Uh, so uh, during that same period, they actually found uh, some tools of a similar nature uh, across a, uh, basically the basically uh, the straits in Johor. Uh, it's uh, in, the, in the Malay, it's called Tabrao Straits uh, at a place called Tanjung Bunga. Um, so some researchers actually found also some stone tools there too. And it's located very close to the one in Tanjung Karang in Tuas. So people, uh, there was one um, author, Roland St. Brattle. Um, he actually thought that there might be a connection between these two. But honestly, we, no one's really written about or tested this theory before. So, you know, if somebody is interested in, you know, writing or learning more, uh, the materials are out there for people to do it. So. Why aren't you writing about them? <laughs> Well, maybe if I have the time, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, too busy doing other fun things. <laughs> so we found, we found stone tools in Tuas, we found stone tools on Pulau Ubin, we found stone tools in Johor, mm -hmm. nearby the, the, the site in Tuas. Um, so it's great, isn't this, you know, is this sign that Fred Flintstone was walking around Singapore? Not exactly. Um, we're not sure how old these things are, actually, because um, back then, I think radiocarbon dating was only uh, done in Malaysia or Malaya in 1960s. So before then, because uh, these stone tools were found, you know, 1920s or before, a lot of them they don't they, don't, they can't be carbon dated because there's are, they've already been found. There's no carbon materials associated with them. So how can we date them? Okay, so this is what I didn't realize, okay? But you cannot do carbon dating on, radiocarbon dating on stone tools, is that no, correct? No, uh, so basically radiocarbon dating, um, 
is basically dating things that have carbon in them. So uh, anything that was living has carbon, is carbon-based, right? So you can do, basically study the half-life uh, of the carbon. And so it's like 1,280 years. Every 1,280 years, then uh, it, basically the amount of carbon in the organism um, basically is halved after it dies. So every, for every 1,080, 280 years. So you basically calculate uh, the difference between when the organism was alive and, and when it's dead, that's how you derive a carbon date. Right. But because stones are not carbon I did based, not know this. <laughs> so uh, I like, you can't do it. <laughs> I was like, why can't we just do it? And then she, and then she explains that, oh, well, you know, it's stone. They don't have carbon. Yeah, so there's also other ways to date stone. Oh, so really? there, there's something called potassium argon and argon-argon dating for dating materials that are older. Right. And so they don't rely on carbon necessarily. But because they basically they date formulation dates. So like when it was the stone tool was created. They don't actually show you when, you know, it was being used, when it was being shaped. So we have to rely on other materials to actually help us pinpoint a date. So how 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 do archaeologists then pinpoint the date these days? of a stone tool? What, what do they have to do? Okay, so I'll just give you an example of a site in uh, Bintan. Um, okay. They found one site recently. Uh, it's a shell midden. And so what happens is that there's a... Let me stop you there. What's a shell midden? Okay, think of like a, a, small, a large mound, maybe about three to five meters in high. And wow, it's all high. majority... Yeah, three, three to five meters in height. And majority of the materials are shell. So that's what a shalmidin is. So sometimes it's like, uh, uh, maybe it's like the remnants of people like eating all this, you know, shellfish and things like that and you just, you know, throwing in a, in a pile, right? right? That's what you think of it. But somehow we found stone tools in it. And so when they dated, you know, this particular thing, you can actually see uh, layers and levels. And you can date because the, let's say the, this particular shalmidin, um, you can actually, because shell, of course, is carbon related, so you can actually date the shell. So depending on what layer it was found and how, further, how much further down, you can estimate a date based above and below the, like the stone tool. So you get the age of the shell. That's right. Nearby that, that tool, and then you get an idea of how old that tool That's is. That's right. So we don't actually know how old the, 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 the ones on Singapore and, and in Johor are, because you know, there, were no, there were no carbon based life forms that died nearby that we've preserved. That's right. But can't we just say, well, you know, this this looks like it's like 3,000 years old or something, you know, can't, you know, this is a stone tool, it must be like thousands of years old, can't we, can't we just make a, an educated guess? Yes, uh, actually, so there's different methods of uh, trying to find out the dates. And so what you were trying to say is that maybe there is something that is very similar. But I'm saying it very badly. No, no, no. <laughs> maybe what you're saying is uh, something like, uh, it, maybe there's other stone tools that are very similar to this one. Ah, I see. So when you, those have dates, radiocarbon dates, then you can actually figure out, hey, you know, maybe this was actually, you know, um, this is actually during, let's say, the Mesolithic period or the you know, Paleolithic period or the Neolithic period. So these periods that I'm talking about are when people think that, hey, you know, this is like the, the age when man first started walking um, or when 
Uh, for example, people started having agriculture. So Neolithic was associated with that. Right. And so for a lot of these tools, they think it might be pretty late. So Neolithic period, the beginning of agriculture, so uh, the founding invention of pottery. So probably uh, some, there was one researcher who thought that one of these was about 4,000 BCE. We don't know for sure. Um, maybe with you know, further research uh, and better dates, we will find out more for certain. But I think what's most exciting is that you know, there's p potential for other people finding the same thing. What most people don't realize is that a lot of the archaeology is not actually uh, found by archaeologists. Really? What do you mean? People look at these weird things and they're like, hey, what is this thing? It doesn't look like anything I've ever seen. A lot of times people will actually come to libraries or museums and they're like, hey, is this something special? And so if you have seen the articles, you've seen the images, you're like, hey, that looks like a stone tool. So usually that's how people find them. Uh, or, you know, for archaeologists, they, you know, go at particular sites where they think it might be possible. But for the most part, the, this is how people find, you know, archaeological sites. So it's like people coming up to them and say, hey, I found this at the back of my house. Do you think it's important? Can I, can I ask, are the stone tools that have been found, are they necessarily very old? There's a potential to be very old. So in Malaysia, uh, for example, uh, there is one site called uh, Bukit Buno in, I think, Perak. They've claimed that one of the, st one of the stone tools there might be 1.8 million years old. Mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. Um, there are some people who, I know, are a bit doubtful. They, they say that, oh yeah, you know, it's a site of a meteor you know, crash or something like that. So, not quite sure. Uh, they're still obviously discussing it. But it's quite interesting that, you know, it, potentially that our region might have something that old. But could it be much younger? It could also be much younger. But how much younger? There's a site called Bukit Karang Kawal Darat in Indonesia, in Bintan, that I was talking about. There's a radiocarbon date that suggests that it was in use between the 5th and 10th centuries. As it's late as that. Old. It's pretty old, but not that old. It's like the metallic age. Yeah, that kind yeah. Of thing. We're, not, we're, we're not talking about Fred Flintstone anymore. Yeah, no. So I suspect that, you know, they were actually in use for until pretty late, and they could have had a secondary use as well. Right. So, for example, you know, you find it, but then you keep using it again. Right. Or it could be an heirloom or things like that. I mean, it could also be used for rituals. Um, I found evidence, for example, that it could have been used as a charm. Oh. Uh, that kind of thing. So it's, there's a lot of reasons why people would keep this sort of thing around. So ju just because you found a stone tool, it doesn't mean that it's thousands and thousands of no, years No, not old. necessarily. It could just be... You know, a few hundred years old, which is still pretty old, but pretty not, old. Not, not thousands of years old. Yeah, so there's a lot of possibilities, and I think it's a, it's a good field to go into, and if you're interested, yeah, I mean, I, I think they're there for people to research, right? And hopefully the library can provide some resources for people to do that. Is it true to say that, you know, they have, despite the stone tool that's like 1.8 million years old, not very many stone tools have been found in this region, in comparison, say, to Europe. Okay, so in Europe, um, every time they basically do construction, they have to do some sort of like impact assessment. Ah. And so that's why they are able to find that many more stone tools, uh, that many more archaeological sites. I think in Singapore, 
uh, for the civic district especially, there've been an e there's been an effort by uh, archaeologists to really pinpoint and you know say, hey, you know, we think there might be 14th century materials here. But for stone tools, I don't think there's one like there's an impact assessment, you know, sort of like formulation for that yet. But I suspect now that we know, you know, the size for these areas, they might, people might, you know, sort of be set, be asked to like, you know, just look out. If you see it, report it, um, that kind of thing. So at least we'll, uh, people will be in the know and to leave it alone, I suppose. There's this thing called a bamboo hypothesis, right? That, that archeologists use. And you, you talk about it in your article. What, what is the bamboo hypothesis? Okay, so in Singapore, or actually in Southeast Asia, um, the development of stone tools was actually quite different. When you actually use stone tools, you spend more and more man hours to become smaller. And they, they become basically what you call microliths. You basically, okay, think of it as like a, you know how an, an axe or like a, a chainsaw has many teeth, right? Yeah. So yeah. basically you create stones that can mimic that. Okay. And so at a certain period in Europe, they started creating stone tools small enough, maybe between one and four centimeters, to be hafted in, into like a larger wooden uh, platform. So then you can actually use them as sort of like an... Like a saw? Like a saw, yeah. Oh. So things like that. Okay. Uh, some of them are also small enough to become like, you know, um, arrow points and things like that. Right. So instead of like having larger objects where they're like the size of your fist or your, you know, your palm and things like that, they become much smaller. In Southeast Asia, there's a di there seems to be a difference. We're not sure why. And so some a difference people, in what? So basically it didn't go that way. Oh, okay. So, so there's well, a lot less, to? there's a lot less incidences of like smaller stone tools being reported. So what happens is that in Southeast Asia, they've actually kept using the old, like sort of like fist-sized uh, stone tools for a very long time. So we're not sure why that is. And people said, hey, you know, maybe they were using our other different um, media. So for example, they're not using stone. Because, you know, stone is not necessarily very ideal. Maybe they were using wood. And that doesn't actually leave a trace in the archeological record. And so that's why there's this bamboo hypothesis because bamboo grows very quickly. It's very handy. You can use it for all kinds of things. Like, you know, you can use it as, you know, utensils, like a you know, bowl and things like that. People use it for steaming and things like that. So it has a lot of uses that in Southeast Asia um, that maybe in Europe and other places they don't. So there's this idea that because of this bamboo hypothesis, that's why uh, the development of stone tools in Southeast Asia was a bit different. Oh. But so it's not it's clear. replaced by bamboo in yeah, some way. Yeah, but it's not clear because there's um, this tendency to really focus a lot of research in very good conditions. Like, for example, they focus a lot of prehistoric research in caves. They can't just focus on caves because obviously there's they don't spend all that time in caves. If you're in winter and you need to place a shelter, maybe caves are a good thing because you can last, you know, I'll last the winter in caves. But if you have really good weather, why would you stay, <laughs> spend so why much time spend, in caves, right? Yeah, yeah. So, it's dark, the bats. Yeah, yeah so in Southeast Asia, sometimes it doesn't make sense. So 
not sure if this is really like an overstatement of what you actually find in the archaeological record. We don't know. So what we need is actually more materials and more evidence from uh, non-caves, basically. Okay, we've had archaeological digs done in Singapore, haven't we? You know, can you tell us a little bit about some of the more interesting ones that have happened recently? I mean, when I say recently, in archaeological terms, I mean in the last like few decades, <laughs> not like yesterday or something. The reason why I actually joined, um, like, there was a lot of opportunities that I had. Um, I did my my undergraduate at NYU, at New York University in anthropology. And while I was looking for a program, I actually decided to choose a, a master's program here in NUS in Singapore because I realized that they wanted to focus on Southeast Asian archaeology and I felt like I wanted that particular focus. And then uh, one of the people who actually worked on Singapore, uh, on Singapore archaeology, was actually a professor, John Nixick. He's now retired. Uh, but he did still does occasionally uh, work with students in NTU, uh, so Nanyang Technological University. And so he's working on a few sites in Singapore, but primarily from Fort Canning, though. Uh, this is a, I guess, if you have never been to Singapore before, it's actually a hilltop site uh, that people thought was actually the site of the royal palace. So John Mixick is now focusing a lot of his digs on Fort Canning, is that what you're saying? Yes, so basically since the 1980s, uh, him and his, many of his uh, research assistants have actually focused uh, a lot of work on excavating uh, one particular site in Fort Canning. Um, this is called uh, S well, FTC, like that's the site code. And so they, what they found is actually a glass workshop um, and also uh, some very interesting, very high quality materials that are probably for the elite. So they think that it might be actually uh, the site of a workshop for the royal palace. What kind, of, what kind of things have they found? Okay, so I'll just tell you something that is very rarely found. I, don't, I think this is the only piece in Southeast Asia that, that they found and in. They found like a, a piece of plate that has a compass, like a Chinese compass on it. Oh. And so this is actually quite unique. They might, they think it might have been used for geomancy. So usually, you know, in Southeast Asia, the use of geomancy is usually used for people and power and things right. like that. Right. And then for glass, they didn't have the ability to actually create glass in the 14th century themselves. Oh. So what would they would do is actually import glass from, let's say, China or India and actually uh, remelt it. Oh. Yes. So this was actually a very important site. So they could create bangles, workshop, and things like that. So quite interesting. Wow. Okay. I, I did not know this. Yeah. So if you want to see the artifacts, there's actually a heritage gallery uh, now. On Fort Canning? And on Fort Canning itself. I think it's level three um, that you can actually go see the artifacts and the, the new exhibit that's there. Um, they've recently refurbished it. So, so those are the, the, um, the digs that are, are currently taking place. Um, have you yourself been involved in any, any expeditions? I've been involved in a few. Um, some of my major ones are mostly in Cambodia, uh, but I've actually taken part in uh, one in Indonesia. One of them, I'll, I'll just explain first. 
for the Indonesian one, I was looking for Sriwi Giant sites. So we, I was part of a team from Asia Research Institute, and we basically explored uh, basically the, it's like the Batanghari River. It's close to Jambi in Sumatra. And so we were looking for uh, new, for, like basically uh, Sriwi Giant sites along the river. And so we visited uh, very, very famous sites like uh, the suspected university, quote-unquote, the Buddhist university oh. of uh, Muara Jambi, wow. things like that. So it's, it's really amazing. So I was uh, very lucky to have the opportunity. I've also excavated at the 10th century uh, capital city of Koh Kher in, in Cambodia. That's where I would say, like, okay, if you think of a, a stepped pyramid, I've excavated at the only stepped pyramid in Cambodia. Wow. So we were looking for a settlement site there, uh, evidence of settlements and things like that. What does it feel like when you're, you know, excavating something and you find, like, you make this discovery? Have you found anything, like, really amazing? Uh, I would say that I have. Well, our team has. Okay. I, I'll just put it that way. Okay. Uh, it's a team effort, right? Yes, uh, in yes, archaeology, it's a, always a team effort. Um, when we were excavating the site called Tonlus Muat, uh, it's basically just maybe 10 minutes walk north of the gate of Angkor on the left. Uh, there's, it's, a, it's basically a 10, 11th or 12th century hospital site. We accidentally discovered like a six foot statue, a guardian statue. Wow. So it sort of made the news rounds and wow. the guardian and things like that. So. We were quite surprised and, I mean, pleased, but very surprised. Where was this? This was, oh, I can't remember, it was like 2017, 2018. It feels like a lifetime ago. <laughs> well, it sounds That's, fun though. Especially after, you know, COVID and things like that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So actually now, now, uh, now with, you know, travel restrictions, you know, lifted, are you, are you planning to do any, go on any dig? Uh, I did promise to go to Penang because uh, for my master's I was studying also stone tools. Uh, but this, uh, the stone tools, even though they're in Singapore, they've actually done more research on the actual site itself. And so there's a site museum now in Penang. On the mainland side, it's called Guacapa. And so they found a lot of really cool stuff. And I want to do a little bit more research there. But it's hard to say, you know, when I'll have the time. So. <laughs> So hopefully the powers that be. The far more interesting things to do at the library. I, yes, I did. Um, I did. I, so. Actually, uh, you know, that sort of reminds me. You know, you you have a background in archaeology. Right. What are you doing in the library? Ah, okay. So digging through books. So people might not understand the shift, uh, but actually archaeology is like actually excavation is a very very small part of the whole process. So at the very beginning, before you excavate, you have to find a lot of information. And at the end, when you find the materials, you're like, what the heck is this? And so you have to really find information. And so there's some things from our excavations that we still don't have answers for. And so here I am to look for them. Well, okay, okay. <laughs> so that's on my own time, obviously. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, I don't, sure. you know, just join the library just because of that. But, you know, if I can help, you know, efforts and things like that, then I'm happy to as well. Fantastic, fantastic. Okay. What would you say to someone then, you know, based on all your experience, who's, you know, who thinks they found a stone tool? Because you said, you, uh, you mentioned earlier that, you know, quite a lot of the stone tools are actually found by regular people who, you know, digging up in their garden or something, right? So 
you know, if, if someone in Singapore, you know, came across what, they, what they, they thought might be a stone tool, what, what would be your advice to them? Okay, my advice would be take a picture of it. Uh, try not to move it so around so much because sometimes contact is really important. Um, take a picture of the surrounding area. Is it like a disturbed area? Has there been a lot of construction in the area? So if it, there's been a lot of construction, it might not actually be a stone tool. So if it's in a pristine area, you know, there's a greater likelihood. Uh, most, of the people, most of the people who actually find stone tools are actually construction people or people digging up, you know, like maybe there was, there's no more like gardeners necessarily in Singapore anymore. But, you know, people who work in that kind of field, they know they've dug up stuff before. This doesn't look anything natural. It's probably a stone tool. But, you know... The, depends on... So you, what you're saying, take a picture and... And maybe just, you know, report it to NHB. Okay. See what they think. All maybe right. they have experts on hand to help. Okay. And, um, you know, I, you know it, I've, I've always wanted to be an archaeologist, but, you know, it always seemed like a lot of work, right, digging in the hot sun. Um, but, you know, if, if someone actually wanted to be an archaeologist or join in an archaeological dig, could they do it in Singapore? They could. What would they need to do? Uh, I, I would probably just say, um, I think, especially, I think if you're in NTU, um, there's a professor there, uh, Dr. Um She has some students actually studying pottery from Fort Canning. So if you want to do that route, you can actually do that. And occasionally there's going to be people who are asking for help uh, during certain excavations. So if you are in contact with her, uh, usually you will find out. So what, what kind of qualifications do you need to be an archaeologist? You have to be fit. <laughs> That's <Obviously>. me. <laughs> Clearly not. <laughs> but beyond that, I mean like academic qualifications. Do you need like academic qualifications? Uh, to be an archaeologist, well, uh, to be a professional archaeologist, you often have to have an, either an anthropology or an archaeology degree. Right. So that's usually the case. Uh, but there are many people who have joined the profession with other degrees. Um, so it's not necessarily like the end of the world if you don't have one. I think the passion really matters. And all the better if you have a, something that you're really, really interested in. And don't mind, you know, Hours and hours of you know washing pot shirts, very very menial tasks. But if you have very good patience, I think that's the one thing because it it's one thing to wash pot shirts for a week. It's another thing to wash it for six months at a time. I think I've enough. I've washed enough pot shirts in my time. <laughs> have you so, found? But it must have been you know. Have you found anything in the pot shirts that you that you've washed? I mean, yes, obviously. We found, like, uh, makers, marks, and things like that. And so hopefully, you know, everybody's hours are counted and things like that. So we'll be thanked, hopefully, in the, in the you know, in the sort of, like, end of the book and some things like that as, the, as one of the, as the excavation team. That's our hope. That's usually the hope. Okay, so what are you working on now? Right now, uh, for the library or? For the library and for, for, for your for your archaeological, like, stuff? Okay. Um, for the... I'll just talk about the, the, the library first, because I think maybe people are not sure what I do actually at the library. 
So at the library, I actually, you know, do counter services. I, so if you ask me a question, I'll help you, you know, look for the answers. But I also work with the Singapore Digital Resources team. So I try to help uh, find resources that are overseas about Singapore and try to help bring them back to Singapore. Oh, that's interesting. So like, the, like what? So like, for example, we've recently worked with the, um, the Royal Belgian uh, Library. It's basically the National Library of Belgium. Uh, it's called the KBR uh, for short. Uh, we've actually asked uh, to, you know, recover basically uh, some digital uh, digital manuscripts and bring them back, because sometimes they are so fragile, uh, and we want to make them available to the general public. So eventually, what they'll do is uh, actually put them up on something called Book SG, and so you'll be able to browse that manuscript. So this, these, these, this manuscript currently resides in an archive or a library in Belgium? That's right. So you don't have to actually travel to Belgium itself. You can actually just click you know, a couple of buttons on the website, and then there you go, the whole manuscript. So. Uh, what else do you do at the library? Uh, at the library, I think that's, that's my, my major main task. But uh, I also help write encyclopedia articles for Infopedia. I also write Bibliotheca articles. Uh, so, I mean, this is Bibliotheca Plus, so I try to give a bit more, uh, but yes. Thank you very much, um, Shooting. I mean, we've, we've covered quite a lot, and if anyone's interested in, in learning more about uh, stolen tools in Singapore, they should check out Shooting's article on Bibliotheca. But Shooting, right now we come to the part of the podcast where we ask questions, and we want you to reply very quickly, right? Okay. And it's not necessarily related to archaeology. Actually, okay. it's not really the archaeology. Okay. Um, so my first question is, who is the coolest person that you know of in Singapore history? There's so many. I can't, I can't choose one. Okay. All right. I'm going, I'm going to uh, let you off the hook on that one because you obviously, you know, being an archaeologist, you're, you're, you know, you, you, there must be thousands, millions of people that you could think of. Um, is there a historical figure anywhere in the world that you would like to have dinner with? Uh, okay, I can think of one person in mind, Madeleine Kolani. Um, she was one of the first female archaeologists uh, in Southeast Asia. She's French. Uh, she worked on Vietnam, but she worked on, uh, well, since this podcast is about stone tools, I thought she would be appropriate. Uh, she, worked, she basically invented this, cat like this descriptive category called Hobinian. And so she's very, very influential. And they just recently, I think, yesterday or the day before named a street after her. They even have a statue of her in Vietnam. Oh, wow. Yeah, so. What's her name again? Madeline Kolani. Madeline Kolani. Yeah. Okay, okay, that's interesting. Okay, let me ask you, what book is on your nightstand? My nightstand? Recently, I haven't really read that many books, but maybe I'll, I'll talk about something that I recommended to the library recently. Okay. Uh, Philippe Beaujard's uh, The World's, oh, let's see, the, the World's of the Indian Ocean, Volume 2. The Worlds of the Indian Ocean. Why would you recommend this book? It basically looks at a uh, non-Europe-centric uh, world history view of the Indian Ocean. Oh. So it's very, very interesting. Um, the, the, it was written by Philip Bojard, who used to be the director of research at CNRS. But I find that, you know, sometimes he's a bit of a lazy cider. I don't know. I'm not sure if it's the English translation. It's uh, published by Cambridge University, but I, it's at the library. So if you want to see it. 
Okay, how do I spell his last name? Uh, B-E-A-U-J-A-R-D. Okay, très bien, très bien. Um, complete the sentence. Um, history is? Contentious. Okay, I like that. Um, Biblioasia is? Noteworthy. Noteworthy. And reply very quickly without thinking. I say to you, I just want, I'll say something to you and I just want to get your immediate response. Indiana Jones. Tomb Raider. You're an archaeologist. Can't you say something? Do <laughs> you think that, you know, do you think Indiana Jones has been a plus or a minus for archaeology? Indiana Jones has been a plus. It, it has popularized the field, I would say, more than it has attracted. But, I mean, technically he was a very bad archaeologist. <laughs> I mean, he made the temple <laughs> fall, right? I mean, you kind of want to preserve it, right? So... <laughs> well, okay, you know, I, I, I still got to say that, you know, Indiana Jones, uh, the Indiana Jones movies are still my favorite movies. Uh, but thank you, Xu Xing, for, 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 for joining me on BiblioAsia Plus. Um, to learn more about the mysterious stone tools of Singapore, check out Xu Xing's article in the, on the BiblioAsia website at biblioasia.nlb.gov.sg. Thanks, Xu Xing. No problem, Jimmy. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe to the podcast and the BiblioAsia newsletter. Thank you for joining me on BiblioAsia Plus.